In John 17, 20 and 21, Jesus said, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. This is often referred to as Jesus' high priestly prayer. And in this prayer, he prays for his apostles. And then he prays not only for his apostles, but he prays for everyone who would believe through their word. Guess who that includes? That's us. Here we are reading the book of John and believing in Jesus based on John's word. We are those who are believing on Jesus through their word. And his prayer for us is that we would all be one as the Father and the Son are one. And the key that I hope you'll recognize here is that he doesn't just pray for oneness just because, well, he likes oneness. He says that they may all be one, just as you are in me and I am in you, that the world may believe that you've sent me. The reason for unity, the reason for oneness among God's people is so that the world looking upon us will be able to say, oh, there's something about those folks. There's something different. And I notice their unity. And they'll be able to believe that when we go forth and tell folks, God sent Jesus into the world. As they see our unity, they'll see a testimony that that statement is true. And sadly, of course, the religious division that dominates our world is, is one of the reasons so many people turn against Jesus. Because there's so much division, they take a look at all the religious and say, well, if they can't figure it out, why should we bother? And I doubt that there's very much that we'll be able to do, either as a congregation or as individuals, to cause the religious world in our day to come to unity. Now, I'm not saying we don't try, I'm not saying we don't go forth and teach, but just in all reality, there's probably not a whole lot that we're going to do that's going to cause all the religious divisions that are in the world now to suddenly shut down their doors and all come together believing and teaching just what Jesus is saying. However, if we think about this concept of unity, we can think about us as a congregation. Can we do something about our unity? Now, just this past week, Brother Francis from Collierville presented some excellent lessons, most of which dealt with the idea of connecting so that we can go forth and conquer. And I wanted to take this opportunity to kind of sum up and, and revisit that and, and make sure that we recognize that wasn't just a, a nice week of studies and, oh, it's all over and now let's move on with business as usual, but rather just come back to the Scripture and talk about the unity that we need to have, the togetherness, the connection, and, and what it's going to take to accomplish that. And just as Brother Francis said, I think there's some great lessons back in the book of Joshua. Some stories that we need to take a look at. In Joshua chapter 22, there's a story that takes place that demonstrates what happened when some division starts to arise. And I think we can learn some lessons from this. But the thing that we need to understand is that when we talk about unity, when we talk about a congregation staying together and being united and being connected and going forth and conquering, I'm not just saying that because it's a neat idea. I'm saying that because the thing we need to understand is that when we can stay together and united, it focuses the world's gaze upon God. Every division causes folks to turn away from God. 
And so we need to work on focusing the world toward God. So much of division is about selfishness and about my way and my will. And that's exactly what it causes folks to see. Me. Us. Unity causes folks to see God. And that's the point that we need to make. Before we take a look at the five lessons I think we can get out of Joshua 22, would you bow with me in prayer, please? Almighty God and Father in heaven, we love you and we praise your name. And we thank you for all that you have done for us. We thank you on the individual level, especially for the salvation that each of us had through your Son. The forgiveness that you've offered us. We're thankful for the word that you've provided that we might know how to honor and glorify you and walk on your way. Father, we pray that we will be pure in heart, that we'll be peacemakers, that we'll be those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. <coughs> Father, we are thankful that you've brought us together into this family, that we can lift one another up and help one another, encourage one another, bear one another's burdens, hold one another accountable when, we, when we've fallen into sin, lift, lift one another up when we've stumbled in the battle. Father, we pray that you would help us to do that out of love and mercy. We know that Satan is attacking us. We know that he's attacking each of us individually. We know he's going to attack the church and is attacking this congregation. And we pray that your hand of mercy and guidance and benevolence will, will hold this church in your protective hand. We flee into you as our rock and our fortress. And we pray that you help us as individuals in the church simply do your right thing and that you will protect us from those attacks of the tempter. Help us to have our faith in you. Father, we love you so much, and we thank you for loving us. For your Son's name we pray. Amen. First of all, the background. We take a look in Joshua chapter 22, beginning at verse 10. Now, remember that with Moses, the children of Israel had come into the east side of the Jordan. They had conquered a whole bunch of land, and Reuben and Gad, and half of the tribe of Manasseh. And just real quick, I'll throw this in for free. A lot of folks think that that idea of the half-tribe of Manasseh is because Manasseh and Ephraim were, uh, were two tribes that came out of Joseph. Joseph, instead of getting one tribe, got two, Ephraim and Manasseh. A lot of folks look at half-tribe of Manasseh and say, oh, that's because it's half of Joseph. No, no, no. Manasseh had land on the east side, and Manasseh had land on the west side. And so when it's talking about the half-tribe of Manasseh, it's not saying Manasseh as half of the tribe of Joseph. Manasseh was a full tribe, but some of them were on the east, some of them were on the west. And so Reuben and Gad and half of the tribe of Manasseh asked Moses if they could have land on this east side of the Jordan. And Moses said, absolutely, however, you can't get out of the battles. We're going to go through and we're going to conquer Canaan and you have to come with us. And God will protect your land as you leave your women and your children behind and your crops and your land. God will take care of that. Trust God. You come over with us. We'll conquer the land over here so that all the other tribes can have their land. And then you'll get to come back. And that's exactly what happened. And of course, we know there was some trouble on that on the other side of the Jordan. But overall and in general, Israel conquered Canaan. And finally, it came to the point that Reuben and Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh were allowed to go back to the other side of the Jordan. And we've come to that point in Joshua 22, verse 10. When they came to the region of the Jordan, that is, in the land of Canaan, the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh built there an altar by the Jordan, an altar of imposing size. And the people of Israel heard it said, Behold, the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh have built the altar at the frontier of the land of Canaan in the region about the Jordan on the side that belongs to the people of Israel. When the people of Israel heard of it, the whole assembly of the people of Israel gathered at Shiloh to make war against them. 
<coughs> Excuse me. Then the people of Israel, in verse 13, sent to the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh in the land of Gilead, Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the priest, and with him ten chiefs, one from each of the tribal families of Israel, every one of them the head of the family among the clans of Israel. And they came to the people of Reuben, the people of Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh in the land of Gilead. And they said to them, Thus says the whole congregation of the Lord, What is this breach of faith that you have committed against the God of Israel in turning away this day from following the Lord by building yourselves an altar this day in rebellion against the Lord? Have we not had enough of the sin at Peor, from which even yet we have not cleansed ourselves, and for which there came a plague upon the congregation of the Lord, that you too must turn away this day from following the Lord? And if you rebel against the Lord today, then tomorrow he will be angry with the whole congregation of Israel. But now if the land of your possession is unclean, pass over into the Lord's land, where the Lord's tabernacle stands, and take for yourselves possession among us. Only do not rebel against the Lord or make us as rebels by building for yourselves an altar other than the altar of the Lord our God. Did not Achan the son of Zerah break faith in the matter of the devoted things, and wrath fell upon all the congregation of Israel? He did not perish alone for his iniquity. <coughs> and so there is this apparent rebellion from Reuben and Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh. And the tribes on the western side said, we can't have that. And this is our story, and this is where we can find some lessons. The very first thing I think we need to understand is that rebellion does, in fact, need to be disciplined. I don't think we should hold it against the tribes on the west side, that they came to make war against their brothers on the eastern side. The fact is, is that if those three, two and a half tribes had been in rebellion, they would need discipline. And that's exactly what these tribes understood, and we need to recognize that today. Now, we understand that today, when someone is rebellious against the will of God, we're not going to gather together and put on our armor and get out our swords and go make war on them. But God has, in fact, demonstrated what we must do when someone is in rebellion, when someone needs to be disciplined. In Matthew chapter 18, Matthew chapter 18, beginning at verse 15, the Scripture there says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say to you, if two, or, uh, two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Here we recognize that if somebody is rebelling against God's will, if we see somebody in their city, our job is to go to them first one-on-one. Uh, one one. If they won't listen then, then we take one or two with us, so that at the mouth of two or three witnesses, everything can be established. If they still won't listen, then it's brought before the church, and the church is made aware. And now the church goes uh, to that person. And, and I, I know we have questions. What does that mean? Does that mean the elders now go on behalf of the church? Does that mean all the church? Or, and I think some of that's left up to a congregational judgment, because it just doesn't explain exactly what that means. But, but it is made known to the congregation that that something's happening and somebody needs our prayers and somebody needs us to go to them and, and seek their repentance. And then if they still won't repent, then they're to be to us as a tax gatherer and as a Gentile. And can I just throw this in? I just want to point this out. Matthew 18.20 is perhaps one of the most misused passages in all of Scripture. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I among them. So many people come to this passage and say, oh, see, every time you have two or three Christians together, you've got a church. 
That's absolutely not what this passage is saying. This passage is not saying that because you have two or three Christians together on a Sunday, you can go ahead and take the Lord's Supper. That's not what it's saying. It's actually said in the context of this discipline. What does this passage say about two or three? It says that at the mouth of two or three witnesses, everything may be established. Basically, what Jesus' point is, is the whole congregation doesn't have, they didn't have to have actually seen the person commit the sin on the mouth of two or three witnesses who are acting in the name of Jesus. The congregation can take action. That's what this means. That's what this means. Please, let's remove from our prayers that God is with us right now because where two or three are gathered, God is there. That is not what this is saying. Hebrews 13, 5 and 6 points out that all by myself, God is with me all the time. This passage is not saying where two or three Christians are sitting together that that's a church or it's an assembly. What it's saying is when two or three Christians acting in the name of Jesus have witnessed and gone to deal with the brother for a sin, the congregation can now act based upon that because Jesus is there with those two or three witnesses. That's what's being said in this passage. But this is talking about the discipline. 1 Corinthians also talks about it. First Corinthians chapter 5, beginning at verse 6. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother. If he is guilty guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. And then in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. Beginning at verse 6. Now we command you, brothers, this is 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 and verse 6. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness, and not in accord with the tradition that you have received from us. And then down in verse 13, As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person or mark that person and have nothing to do with him that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. The thing that we need to recognize is that rebellion must, in fact, be disciplined. And that's something the churches are getting away from today. And one of the things that I got out of Terry's lesson this week is that, is that we as members of the congregation need to uphold our leaders when they're doing God's will. And it's a sad thing that leaders in God's church today are sometimes, sometimes they're, they're worried when they do it. Even if they're going to go on with it, they're worried because they know there's going to be fallout. They know that when they do what God says they're supposed to do, that there are going to be folks that get upset at them and rebuke them and have all kinds of problems. And what we need to do is that when there is rebellion in our midst and, the, and our leaders have to take the, the, the action that is here, we need to hold them up. And we need to let them know, as the people with Joshua did, that we're following you. We're behind you. And that's what we need to do. Not hold it against our leaders when they lead us in this pattern. But we need to support them and hold up their hands as they make the hard decisions. And the other thing that we need to recognize about this discipline of rebellion 
is that when we look in Joshua chapter 22, these Israelites recognized that this was a matter of self-preservation. They understood that dealing with the rebellion was important because if they didn't, God would discipline the nation. They remembered Numbers 25 and Baal at Peor. And it's, it's not surprising that they would remember that because the Phineas, uh, the, the Phineas who went with this entourage of people that went to question those folks on the east side, he's the same Phineas who in Numbers chapter 25 shoved the spear through Zimri and Cosby to stop the plague that God had brought upon the people. 24,000 people died in that plague. Not just the folks who had committed the immorality, but God sent a plague on Israel. They understood if, if, if rebellion is allowed to go on, that it's not just those folks who rebelled, but, but the entire nation will be disciplined. And Achan, Achan sinned, but it was Israel when they went to Ai that was defeated and 36 people died because of it. So they understood that it's a matter of self-preservation. Revelation chapter 2 teaches us the same thing. In Revelation chapter 2, In Revelation chapter 2, beginning at verse 12, it says, To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. There were some that were following this rebellious doctrine. And Jesus said to them, you've got to do something about this. Otherwise, I'll come and make war against you. So we understand that, that following God's will about disappointing the rebellious is, is actually for the self-preservation of the people of God. Otherwise, we too might suffer the judgment of God. But there's a second thing that we need to recognize in Joshua chapter 22. And the reason we need to recognize this is that because while rebellion does need to be disciplined, the reality is in this case, Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh were not rebelling. The second thing that we need to recognize is things are not always what they appear. Things are not always what they appear to be. From the folks on the west side of the Jordan, I mean, it looked bleak. It looked awful. Why else would they build an altar? What other possible purpose could they have had for an altar? Have you ever caught yourself telling yourself things like that? You see that somebody's done something and you start telling yourself in your mind, well, why else could they possibly have done this? You know, they used this word and they said this thing and they went to this place. Why else could they possibly have done this? And yet when you actually go talk to them, you find out, oh, okay, that's why else. I hadn't thought about that. And that's exactly what happens here. They send a group of people, and it's good that they did. It's good that they sent Phineas and heads of the other tribes to go and talk to Reuben again and the half-tribe of Manasseh. Because they found out that it wasn't rebellion at all. Chris read to us in the Scripture reading what they were really doing. They weren't setting up an altar on which to sacrifice 
they were setting up an altar that says, hey, you guys need to remember we're one of you. That altar that is with the tabernacle, and of course eventually would be with the temple, that altar is our altar too. And so we've set up this replica of that altar so that one day, generations to come, those tribes over there on the west side, they look over here and say, who do you think you are coming over to worship with us? There'll be this memorial here. There'll be a replica that says, oh, that's who you are. You're one of us. But things are not always what they appear. And so we need to proceed with caution and we need to proceed with humility. Because sometimes we see that Christian exiting an establishment that we realize, well, that's not where a Christian should be. And we can jump to conclusions, but our conclusions might be wrong. Or we hear a story about someone who supposedly did something, but then we find out later that we didn't have all the information. We need to understand that things are not always as they appear at first glance. And so that leads us to the third lesson. And that third lesson is is that we need to question before we assume and accuse. We need to question. We need to pull them aside and we need to talk to them. And that's exactly what happened here in Joshua 22 and verse 13. The people of Israel sent to the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh in the land of Gilead. Phinehas, the son of Eleazar the priest, and with him ten chiefs, one from each of the tribal families of Israel. And they said, what are y'all doing? <laughs> How could you do this? In Joshua 18, verse 1, we know where the tabernacle is at this time. In Joshua 18, verse 1, then the whole congregation of the people of Israel assembled at Shiloh and set up the tent of meeting there. The land lay subdued before them. That's where the tent of meeting was. The tabernacle wasn't at Jerusalem yet. It was at Shiloh. And that's where the altar was. That's where they were supposed to go three times a year. That's where they were supposed to sacrifice. But here they built this new altar. But the Phineas and these heads of the tribes, they don't just come in and suit up for armor and go and, and blitzkrieg the eastern tribes. They first send somebody to talk to them. And that's important. Before we start assuming and accusing people, we need to start talking to them to find out, wait a minute, what exactly is going on? In Matthew 18 that we've already read, you remember that Jesus pointed out that if somebody sins, we're supposed to go to our brother by ourselves. I think there's a couple of reasons for that. Number one, if the brother or sister is actually sinning, we might be able to take care of that one-on-one without the embarrassment of passing it on to everyone else. But number two, we may go talk to them one-on-one and find out that point two here was actually accurate. Things weren't as they appear. And we find out that as we saw that brother leaving that bar, that it wasn't because he's decided to start taking up alcohol, but because his cousin, whom he's been helping, has gone on a bender and he was looking for him, trying to help him and pull him out of that. And we say, oh. Suddenly we recognize there wasn't a sin there. There wasn't a problem. And we can, we can move on. There's a reason for doing things God's way. We need to go to and talk. And a third reason is just because so often we don't understand what the real problem is, even if sin is involved. When we go talk to somebody, we can find out and deal with the real issues. The very important reason is to go talk to someone. Sadly, sadly, what all too often happens, though, if somebody knows or sees something questionable, or even if they are certain that somebody has sinned. And instead of going to talk to that person, they sit back and wonder, when are the elders going to do anything about that? 
I wonder when the preacher's going to do anything about that. And they get together with others and start talking about it. You know what I saw the other day? And they talk amongst themselves. Instead of actually going to the person who's struggling or the person who's sinning, they gossip with each other. Or they ask the preacher to preach on it. Now they kind of come up real sly. You know, I've been thinking, I've been thinking that we need a lesson on this topic. Actually, the lesson that we need brought is, if you have a problem with someone, go talk to them. Or they go to the elders. Now, of course, I think in our day and age, we've decided that, oh, that's the great thing to do. I'm going to go to the elders because they're the ones that are leading the church. They've got a problem with somebody, and the first thing they do is, I'm going to go tell the elders. Maybe the elders will deal with it. That's not what Matthew 18 says. That's not what Matthew 18 says at all. Matthew 18 says, if you see somebody that you have a problem with, somebody who's sinning, who goes to them? You do. You go to them. And when elders are following this passage, here's what you're going to get from the elders when you go talk to them. Have you talked to the brother yet? And sadly, what all too often is somebody comes to the elders and the elders say, have you talked to him yet? Oh, well, no, 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 but I, I thought you guys would want to know. And the elders don't do anything about it because, well, the elders aren't supposed to except for the basis of two or three witnesses. And then folks get upset. Well, I told the elders and they didn't do anything. Because it wasn't their job. It was your job. Go, take one or two with you, then bring it to the church. So that the mouth of two or three witnesses, everything can be established. So we need to question before we assume and accuse. You know, during the Cold War, there used to be the joke about, you know, if you travel in Russia, you know, you don't want to you don't even look like you're breaking the law because they shoot first and ask questions later. We've got to make sure that as a church we don't do that. Ask questions first. Find out what's going on. Maybe we'll find out it's not a problem. If we find out it is a problem, rebellion must be disciplined. But ask questions before you assume and accuse. The fourth thing that I learned from this text is that we've got to have the proper attitude in this whole thing. Think about the two groups here. We've got the nine and a half tribes on the west side and the two and a half tribes. I think about the two and a half tribes and the attitude that they have. When you take a look at this, this passage that, that Chris read, in fact, let's just read it again, make sure we get it on the, on the recording here. Beginning at verse 21. Then the people of Reuben, the people of Gad, and the half tribe of Manasseh said, in answer to the heads of the families of Israel, the mighty one, God the Lord, the mighty one, God the Lord, he knows and let Israel itself know. If it was in rebellion or in breach of faith against the Lord, do not spare us today for building an altar to turn away from following the Lord. Or if we did so to offer burnt offerings or grain offerings or peace offerings on it, may the Lord himself take vengeance. No, but we did it from fear that in time to come your children might say to our children, what have you to do with the Lord, the God of Israel? For the Lord has made the Jordan a boundary between us and you, you people of Reuben and people of Gad. You have no portion in the Lord. So your children might make our children cease to worship the Lord. Therefore we said, let us now build an altar, not for burnt offering or for sacrifice, but to be a witness between us and you and between our generations after us, that we do perform the service of the Lord in His presence with our burnt offerings and sacrifices and peace offerings. So your children are not made to say to our children in time to come, you have no portion in the Lord. And we thought if this should be said to us or our descendants in time to come, we should say, Behold, the copy of the altar of the Lord, which our fathers made, not for burnt offerings nor for sacrifice, but to be a witness between us and you. 
Far be it from us that we should rebel against the Lord and turn away this day from following the Lord by building an altar for burnt offering, grain offering, or sacrifice other than the altar of the Lord our God that stands before His tabernacle. Consider the attitude that they had. They didn't go up and say, who do you think you are to question us? How dare you come to see if we're actually obeying God? Sadly today, folks who are caught in sin, that is the normal response. How dare you question me? Who do you think you are? But that's not the attitude of the two and a half tribes. They recognize, look, if we are turning away from God, then let God Himself judge us. If we're turning away from God, then bring the war on. But that's not what we're doing. You see, they had a great attitude when somebody came to question them. They realized that person's allowed to do that. And then they responded. Here's what's going on. What a wonderful attitude they had. And so when our brethren come to us and say, I'm concerned about something, instead of getting all defensive and getting all bowed up, just respond in humility. We're here to help each other serve the Lord and glorify Him. And because we're going to help each other, there are going to be times that we have to come to each other. I've got a question about something. And that's okay. But also notice the attitude of the nine and a half tribes. And it's interesting that it says Phineas went. He's the representative of the priests. And then there were representatives from ten tribes. You know what that means? That means that the other half-tribe of Manasseh, they also sent a representative. Isn't that interesting? They didn't sit back and say, oh, oh, we, oh, that's family. We can't do anything about that. That's family. They sent people to, to deal with this. But the other aspect of the attitude, and perhaps even the more important aspect, is that when the two and a half tribes on the east told them what was really going on, the nine and a half tribes said, oh. Oh, okay. They didn't sit there and try to justify themselves. They didn't try to trump up some other charges to justify why they had come to question. They didn't, why, why, did, why did it happen like that? Because what the nine and a half tribes were really most concerned about was that the two and a half tribes on the other side served and glorified God. They weren't there to justify themselves. They weren't there just to, to, to make war on their brethren. They weren't there to take this disciplinary measure no matter what happened. They were there to help those other people glorify God. And that's why even before they attacked, they said, look, if the problem is you're on the other side of the Jordan and, and, and there's something unclean about that land, y'all come on over here. We'll find a place for you over here. And then once they learned the truth about what was really going on, oh, and they dropped it. And they let it go. And we need to have that attitude. All too often, it happens on both sides. The one who is being questioned bows up and gets defensive. And the one who is doing the questioning, if he comes to find out that the questioning really wasn't justified, then starts trying to push things. Kind of like that law, you remember, who asked Jesus, what's the greatest law? And Jesus said, well, what do you think? And he said, oh, it's uh, love the Lord your God and love your neighbor. And Jesus said, that's right. You know, as if to say, I don't know why you asked me this question. You already know the answer. And so the lawyer, it says, wishing to justify himself, said, who's my neighbor? That's all too often our attitude. I've got to justify me. That's what it's about. It's about me looking good. And I can't have made a mistake in this, and so now I've got to prove why I was doing this. Instead of just saying, oh, made a mistake. Moving on. I've got to have a proper attitude. And the final thing, 
is just to remember that unity focuses the world's gaze upon God. Unity focuses the world's gaze upon God. Let's just finish out the story. When Phineas the priest and the chiefs of the congregation, the head, this is verse 30, <coughs> the heads of the families of Israel who were with him heard the words that the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the people of Manasseh spoke. It was good in their eyes. And Phineas the son of Eleazar the priest said to the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the people of Manasseh, Today we know that the Lord is in our midst because you have not committed this breach of faith against the Lord. Now you have delivered the people of Israel from the hand of the Lord. Then Phineas the son of Eleazar the priest and the chiefs returned from the people of Reuben and the people of Gad in the land of Gilead to the land of Canaan to the people of Israel and brought back word to them. And the report was good in the eyes of the people of Israel. And the people of Israel blessed God and spoke no more of making war against them to destroy the land where the people of Reuben and the people of Gad were settled. The people of Reuben and the people of Gad called the altar witness, or Ed. I kind of like that altar. That's one of my favorite altars in the Bible, the altar named Ed. For, they said, it is a witness between us that the Lord is God. What did their unity say? Their unity testified, the Lord is God. And when we can have that unity, then that's what we testify to the world. The Lord is God. Sometimes having that unity means we have to purge out the old weapon. Sometimes it means we have to humble ourselves and learn that we too make mistakes. But there's a reason there's a reason for us to talk about these things. There's a reason for us to have a meeting about connecting and conquering. There's a reason for us to get into the Word and talk about the unity that we need to have. Because that unity testifies to the world that our Lord is God. John 17, 20 and 21. Jesus was praying about us. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but also on behalf of those who will believe on me through their Word that they all will be one. As you, Father, are in me and I am in you, that they may be in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. If we want to focus the world's gaze on us, then let's have a lot of bickering, a lot of infighting, and a lot of division. If we want to focus the world's gaze on God, then let's work on unity.